Welcome to Whisper Town, provocative topics discussed freely. My name's Anthony, and I've got three special guests with me for this episode today. So I've got Stephen. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Uh, I've got Akin. Yeah, yeah. Good evening. Evening, brother. And T. Evening, everyone. Good evening, good evening, good evening. So, today's episode's called The Rat Race Roundabout. What the hell is the rat race roundabout? Well, for me, I've got this theory in my head that exists that there's a defined structure or process that the average Joe has to go through to be considered as successful. Uh, So that sort of process is someone goes to school to get good GCSEs, then to go to a good college to get good A-levels, to then go to university to get a good degree. After finishing university, that person then has to go and get a mortgage to buy a house, then get married, have kids, live frugally, but have a nice car and a nice house, and then retire with a Lamborghini at 65. Whilst following that process, the average Joe spends the majority of his life keeping up with the Joneses, or probably more commonly now is keeping up with the Kardashians. And most people that I see just seem to be following that same mantra. So obviously I'm brushing the average Joe with a very broad, generalistic brush but how far away from the truth am I? So I guess, Stephen, from your point of view, what do you think of the rat race? Does it exist? Is it in my head? Well, I, I like that. It's it's almost uh, institutional, isn't it? So I think historically, on a governmental level, you sort of create a system to control the general masses, um, to be compliant with what you need, probably economically. So in terms of the description that you gave, I would say that a government sort of maintaining that kind of schedule or agenda to your life serves a purpose uh, in terms of what it is they need to keep the country uh, running and ticking over. So You'll have the different levels of education that are there, uh, which dictates which industries you get into, which services you can actually perform. Because at a basal level, you need, if you look at the public sector, you need certain services and personnel of a certain uh, education level or skill level uh, to fulfill those obligations to keep the, the country sort of running. So you need that from a financial point of view. You need that from a from a um, sort of manufacturing point of view. 
you need that from a health point of view and you need that from an education point of view. So yeah, I would say it's quite very prescriptive um, with some changes uh, that happen over time. Uh, like for instance, you know, when they shake up, shook up back in the days, O levels, um, and then you then got A levels and then shaking up the GCSE marking system you know, these things were seen as sort of like groundbreaking and quite a quite a move away from the traditional format. But yeah, so I'd say a lot of it is to sort of generally steer a population in a particular direction, living to a particular set of ideals. Okay, okay. I mean, I totally agree, to be honest with you. There's nothing I, I dispute in what you said. I mean, I don't think they necessarily steer you towards that... Uh, 65-year-old Lamborghini driving the status by the... Well, I mean, what I needed to suffix that statement by saying, well, you collect your pension to be able to buy the Lamborghini. That's what I should have said. (laughs) And I think, yeah, by the same contention, I think my modern argument is that by the time I get to retirement age, retirement won't exist. So let alone we'll see if pensions are due. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So, Akin, what, what do you think? The rat race, does it exist? Is it in my head? Yeah, I think Stephen made some really, really good points uh, that I fully agree with. Um, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I would add a few more um, criticisms, really, around the fact that it's old, it's stale, antiquated. Um, it's uh, a model that was uh, designed for a completely different era of time. Um, and very few modifications have been made to it since its inception. You know, it's <clears throat> some of us essentially born out of the Industrial Revolution, where it's taken that model and tried to churn out people who can perform a, a very, very uh, generic, uh, genericized role in any society based on um, a certain sort of very wide broad prescriptive um, framework for producing a productive member of society. So, <clears throat> I mean, it, it's prescriptive, but also uh, generic in the sense that it doesn't really um, work on the premise of producing a balanced human being, but rather a, uh, a docile and um, suggestible human being who can essentially just... Um, uh, uh, consume and regurgitate information as needed. So, uh, yeah, I think beyond that, it's just it's just a, it's essentially a humanitarian issue um, uh, in terms of the sort of uh, effects that it has on uh, citizens in our in our society. Um, and I guess from also from the standpoint of. Um, uh, the liberation of a human being, like what it takes to make uh, a human being that is, as you mentioned earlier, successful and feels uh, a sense of autonomy and a sense of agency and a sense of <clears throat> being able to uh, turn up in the world and, and achieve the things that they, you know, that that they uh, aim to achieve for themselves. Um, the rat race is miserably inadequate. At, uh, 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 assisting human beings, assisting people in achieving goals that 
that you you know that perhaps the you and I might consider to be ambitious or sort of uh, off the beaten track. So yeah, yeah it's, it can be quite mentally limiting when you're sort of locked into this idea of um, as you as you put it earlier, going to school, getting good grades, getting a job. And the reality is <clears throat> we all want to have this, you know, this this dream life of a nice car and a nice house and a family. But a lot of the time, the rat race, it's just, it just doesn't really um, give you the tools needed to achieve that goal. So it can be a bit, sort of, you know, frustrating when you're trying to work within that framework. So I've got some specific questions on what you just said, because what you just said is is enlightening. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hold back because I wanna ask T. Now I'm really interested to hear what T says because T has specific expertise in recruitment and HR and knowing how to motivate people. So so T, what what is your view on the rat race? Is it something you subscribe to? Uh, thanks for thanks for the question. Uh, just hearing your th- your your three previous points, I think I think first of all we must actually define what a rat race actually is, and I, th- I think for most people. If you if you look at any definition of a rat race, it's a pointless pursuit, isn't it? It's it's actually it's self defeating, pointless pursuit. Um, it kind of it, the phrase kind of equates to human humans to rats, essentially attempting to earn such a reward like cheese or something. It's 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 really quite interesting. Um, just hearing the perspective, no, but it's, it it is the case when you think about it. It it, it is the case you are doing a repetitive action for a gain to which for some isn't isn't worth the repetitive action for um but yeah no going away to going more towards the profession i think as a as a human resource professional you hear the term rat race you definitely do know that it is a system designed by the powers that be government however way you want to put it in order to ensure that People pay taxes, in my opinion. Um, people pay certain level, certain levels of taxes. People pay into the system so that it can repeat itself again. It's a self-fulfilling, it's a self-fulfilling paradigm um, in order to keep the country ticking over. I think when I when I think of different different types of roles and different types of expertise, I, I say to myself most of the time that. In order for you to get on the so-called ladder, in inverted commas, you, you need to have done a lot of what of the prescribed uh, prescribed stages of learning and development that you kind of alluded to earlier, Rekha. You know, when you say GCSEs, A-levels, uni, I think you, we can't deny that it all gives us something, um, some sort of structure towards going out there and deciding what you want to do. I think that I think the race is it, it exists because people feel that the government have or the f- people feel that their ideas of success is to be able to achieve all of the aforementioned. The Lamborghini at 65 is a stretch if your pension can get you there. 
but I'd, <laughs> I'd probably more I'd probably more say most people would be happy with a with, with a with a Toyota RZ <laughs> at, that, at that level. But I'll <laughs> be straight. I think I think for for me as a human resource professional, hearing those hearing but all three of your viewpoints, I do think there is a there is some substance to what you're saying, but I also think it kind of leans away from from actually what people's idea of success is. And, and, and that's, that's probably the true answer. That's probably the true reflection of what a rat race actually means to each individual on their own. And that's a, that's a very interesting point that you make there at the end, uh, T, that, that I quite like. So it's the definition of the rat race as per exactly what it is defines success or wealth, um, for the individual. But, you know, in society, I think you can see various shifts in the actual definition of success and wealth. And I think there are things in society that um, sort of define and influence a lot of particularly younger people uh, in the pursuit of certain activities um, in their definition of the rat race. So whether that is with music or with sports, um, or with other entrepreneurial sort of successful uh, celebrities that you sort of see um, attaining a particular lifestyle. Um, I think you you get a lot of young people uh, trying to emulate that level of success. And that in itself is a different element of the rat race outside of your atypical institutional career progression through um, study. I mean, for instance, to become a, to become a, a, a lawyer, or to become a barrister. I mean, the route is fairly defined, right? You're not going to stray too far out of that lane. I mean, watching suits, it doesn't work that way. You don't, you know, you, you can't, you can't sidestep it. You have to go through the educational process and you have to go to the bar, et cetera, et cetera, to actually get there. So that's a particular rat race in terms of success, being a doctor, being a, you know, certain professions, you, you, you don't have a choice in the matter. Precisely. Um, but as I said, there are different sort of strands to the rat race subject to what you're influenced by. And I think probably your socioeconomical surroundings um, have some influence on that as well. Very well said. I, I was thinking, sorry to butt in there, um, Akkad, I was, I was thinking similar to, could you imagine if you're private schooled and what your viewpoint would be on the rat race then, you know, it would be, it would be very difficult. Your pathway would be difficult. You'd be more or less fast tracked through everything. Your idea of success would be difficult, uh, diff, sorry, different from others. So yeah, um, there is, there is an element of routine, I think, to anyone's getting it in. And um, for some, it's going out there training every day. For, for others, it's getting on the tube and going, going into the boardroom and, and making decisions that influence, you know, the strategies of major companies. So it's it very, it's a very, it's varied. It's very, very varied. In relation to both points that you've just made on that item, there's this concept that I believe is not misunderstood, but probably not considered as much as one would think. And it's the idea of, what actually is success? Because for me, success is innately relative, whereas a ideology of absolute success 
is what is perpetuated through all forms of media to almost seduce everyone or the majority of people to lust after the lifestyle that they are broadcasting. So when you say that, or when Stephen says specifically, the rat race is defined by what you're influenced by, that I think that's very, very powerful. Now, when we talk about a rat race, it's quite interesting that, Tunde, you've used that very vivid description to say, it's like we're designed to run for cheese. And it really made me think back to a book I read back a couple of years ago. Um, and this book, for me, was, was very powerful. And it's called The Millionaire Fast Lane. And the book was written by an American guy called uh, MJ DeMarco. Um, his story was very interesting to me because he wasn't one of these millionaires who was obviously born from money. He, again, was just a normal guy. And uh, he made a couple of moves and he became really, really successful. But that's not what I want to talk about because there's lots of self-made millionaires out there. So that's not the point that I'm trying to get to. I'll fast forward and say that he came up with a concept in his book, which I found extremely interesting. And I think it's completely true. And in his book, he said, in life, there are three lanes. And everybody fits into one of these three lanes. The first lane is the sidewalk which actually isn't a lane. So you go from one corner, you turn right, you go to another corner. Someone says, do this to get money. You go left because someone told you to go left. And then someone says, now do this to go right. But the problem is there's no actual goal or destination. You're just walking through back alleys, going left and right in a maze. So you're basically going nowhere, really. You're just looking for the next quick fix, the next get rich scheme. And, you know, because you're, easily influenced and you have no goal or you haven't set no goal, you haven't set no aspirations for yourself, you're literally allowing the environment or the directions that you see in front of you to tell you to go left or to go right. Hustling. Hustling, gambling, hoping, wishing, looking for a bringing. Yeah? So that's how I interpreted the sidewalk. Then the second lane was a slow lane. And this is the stereotypical rat race that I was trying to illustrate at the beginning of the podcast, where you go to school, get good grades, to go to college, to get good grades, to go to uni, to get good grades, to get a corporate job, do really well, get married, buy a house, buy a car, have kids, retire at 65. Live frugally, you know, save your money. You know, keep it in a in a in a in a in a pitiful interest rate bearing account, and uh, yeah, you'll be good when you're 65. Maybe you can buy a house or two, get yourself in more debt, but it'll pay itself off in 25 years, and in 25 years you'll be cool because you might have a couple of houses paid off, and you'll be good when you're 65. Plus plus plus, and then you go to the fast lane which is where 
you're not selling your time for money. You're selling units of something of varying volumes, of varying prices. So you essentially have an uncapped amount of income and you're not bound by the nine-to-five routine that the majority of people are and essentially have the ability to achieve freedom in, 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 in many ways. But many people listening to the podcast will say, well, they're still in some type of race. But I guess... What I'm trying to ask, what I'm trying to ask or find out is, well, doesn't society just only really give us one lane? You know, or do we as individuals need to seek out other lanes, or is it something that we just sort of submit to and just carry on with? And and the reason why I keep asking that question is because there's so many people that I speak to in different walks of life who all seem to complain about the same thing. Not having time, not having enough money, wanting freedom. And sometimes I just get confused. It's like, well, try a different lane. Am I being too harsh, too simplistic? Is it not possible? Or... Am I thinking too optimistically? No, I don't. I don't think it's a matter of you sort of being too harsh. I think the the point that we make about the structure, the societal structure, in terms of your route through your early years uh, into further education um, and getting work, that that model has been so deeply embedded for generation upon generation upon generation that doing something different or contra to that is considered quite bold and quite risky in a lot of cases, um, whereby people sort of gain some security by knowing that at the end of the month in this job, I'm getting this much money and this much money allows me to pay for my mortgage, my bills, my utilities, petrol in the car, which is a Ford Focus, not a Lamborghini. And right, carry on, pay for clothes for, you know, for children, you know, all of the costs in life. So is that security of having that stable regular income um, that I think probably keeps a lot of people in that particular lane. So, you know, the expression is he who vent, you know, who, he who dares wins, yeah. you know, or he who ventures gains. So you do have people who break out of the usual mold um, and do something different, take a chance. Um, and you see those people sort of at a, at, and on a global scale in terms of their, their success and what they've, they've developed. I mean, the rise and rise of social media is an example of against the rat race level of, of development. Um, Microsoft is an example of moving away from the actual rat race. If you think about it, uh, Bill Gates not finishing university because he had a, a, a dream and a vision in terms of starting the company. 
and then he went on to become the richest person in the world whereby he doesn't he doesn't work for money right he doesn't have so, to so, he doesn't have to worry about that so so i'm going to interrupt you there because not because of that um i'm going to interrupt you there because a lot of people will say bill gates is such a extreme comparator to use yeah because i'll be honest with you and most people listening to this could probably tell i can't relate to bill gates in any way shape or form <laughs> yeah. Mm, mm. yeah most can't yeah no of course. So, so so and when people use you know all you got to do is go onto instagram look at hashtag goals or look at hashtag business and you see lots of people regurgitating the same stuff about all these hyper successful entrepreneurs who in the majority of cases had very fortunate starting points and i'm not going to sit here and say that you need to have been born rich to be successful i'm not but what i'm saying is the example or the comparator is extreme now what i'm going to do cuz i think Akin was going to interject a moment ago. So Akin, did you want to add a point there? Yeah, I mean, it's funny uh, that uh, I'm actually um, going to interject at this point because I, I feel like Stephen's Stephen and yourself have raised some really, really interesting points, especially around uh, class uh, and socioeconomics, which I think plays a massive role. Which I think plays a massive role in how we perceive our options and uh, uh, what is available to us, uh, what we feel we have access to. Yeah. Uh, and I think this ties into the rat race, uh, the rat race uh, concept massively. Um, when you feel a sense of agency, when you feel a sense of uh, your individuality being valued, um, you feel you have choices. Um, you feel like the things that you... Uh, excel in uh, that you can actually uh, use these uh, abilities to actually distinguish yourself and propel yourself in that direction um, and I feel like a lot of the time when you're coming from um, a sort of a working class uh, background a lot of the time none of that stuff is necessarily um, actively encouraged anyway I think um, there's maybe a sense of okay you can do that in your spare time but make sure you're reading your book Make sure your <laughs> make sure your masculine talents are a star, and then after that you can pursue your other hobbies. You can pursue your other individual individual um, uh, interests. And I think that's a massive issue around class and around um, why a lot of people fall into this this rat race, this um, this. Uh, uh, this uh, what do you call this thing? This 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 mouse wheel, um, where you're effectively just sort of continually running along this 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 <laughs> this treadmill and going nowhere, and every kilom- a few kilometers getting a a little uh, a little cheese. stack of cash or cheese to keep you going, because you haven't invested in those things that distinguish you from the crowd, you find yourself effectively uh, in mediocre space. Um, trying to do what everyone else is doing to an extent that is sufficient to get you what you need to survive rather than um, 
you really uh, excelling in the thing that perhaps makes you uh, uh, infinitely more valuable proposition in 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 you know in in the commercial arena or in the work arena in whatever arena that you you, you would have wound up uh, pursuing. So I think that's a massive point that you you raised, um, Stephen and me around um, class. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah, coming back to Stephen then. Hi. So, like, I, I thought about that. So the exa- yeah. So the example that I cited. So just going back to your point about the uh, the extreme case uh, about Bill Gates and and um, the ability to relate to it. Again, in terms of who you pick to relate to, in terms of success and influence, um, is is definitely governed uh, in part by. Um, socioeconomic standings and situations and circumstances. Um, that's why you have um, a lot of people either aspiring to be uh, sports sports persons um, because what you see um, on, a, on a daily basis that's presented to you are people who are earning astronom- astronomical amounts of money sort of playing a sport. So you know, whether it's basketball, football, tennis. I mean, you pick any anything and that's fine. I think from a business point of view, you do see successful people that you can aspire to. Um, but I think generally um, being a businessman isn't necessarily an aspirational sort of thing for a lot of people. It may not come across as that exciting subject to what the business is. I mean, if you, if you look at Japan, for example, um, a typically, you know, the aspiration is for a lot of people to become what's known as a salary man. So that means you've attained a certain level of status within a company, but you essentially just fulfill a particular function. And like, that's, that's an aspiration, you know? So, it still comes back to that sort of societal mold or that, you know, that, that pattern that's been established over many generations that's actually hard to sort of break for people to be uh, adventurous enough. So, yeah, uh, Akin's point about, you know, self-worth as well and self-esteem and confidence uh, in your ability to branch out and do something else is also important. Right. Sunday. I think a lot of what Akin and Stephen have just alluded to from a HR perspective is quite interesting. A lot of it is the one word you guys have used. I've, I've seen, social, I've heard social economic touched upon. I've heard, I heard Stephen earlier use a few terms that I thought were very, very salient in terms of security, stable, um, you know, words that just encompass safe you know being safe um but i i think towards the latter point you were making about japan and it and it, and it raised that raised a whole a whole lot of not alarm bells but memories of um of a type of company that i've worked for and and a critical word and a critical word i think we didn't use was culture that that's what it that's what you guys are describing you're describing a culture you're describing a, a you know a, a, an ethos which leans itself or lends itself towards finding 
success through, uh, and you know, through what you do daily, and and having some sort of status that comes with that. I think um, critically for most people, I think um, if you are to if you if you grow up wanting to be something, there are going to be a le- there is a lane in which you're going to need to take to get there. I think if you want to dip your toe into the fast lane, I think you're going to have to. I think most people do it by seeing examples of those that have done it. When you used Bill Gates, I sat there thinking, yes, that is a very, very steep example to utilize. But by the same, I cannot, we all cannot sit here and say that we know that, um, that there are not people that he has influenced. You know, that there, there, there are people I'm sure that have read, you know, any, any biography of his and, and been influenced. So I, I think in one, I think in some respects we're, we're looking at people we're not even talking about ability here which is also quite key but but it's it's interesting that we've that we can see that i think culture is a big big biggest element that kind of can drive you whether that comes from the culture in which your parents have bestowed upon you i can mentioned earlier um or or the the you know the, the small circles of success that you've grew up within um you you're going to you're going to hone your thoughts towards what lends itself um, to your spirit and to your and to your natural ethos, and I think that's I think a, a big element of our discussion today is down to the culture. I think the British culture is more geared towards that rat race piece, um, and and as a result, you have what we have, which is a large number of people working within organisations to find their self worth, but critically. Um, a small subsection of society making that jump into the fast lane, um, and and probably not being applauded enough for doing so. I mean, even recent in recent news with the whole coronavirus schemes and stuff, you know, the government's so quick to save to save um, your average working individual, no disrespect to them at all, jobs, but not they. But took them a while to think of you know the uh, the self made individuals, which is which is quite telling, really. Yeah, I mean, all the points that you've all just made there have made me consider an analogy that I personally have for life. And it relates to a game that I love to play every now and again. And I can and T, we, we, we had a weekend where, where we, we just played a couple of games as well. <laughs> and that's poker, right? So I'm not expecting everyone that listens to this podcast to understand how to play poker. But what I'm going to do, I'm just going to try and explain to you what the analogy is by very quickly explaining how the game works. So poker is a unusual gambling game in many ways because most games that you play in a casino are against the house and ultimately the house always wins. But poker is a game where you get to play against other people. Okay? And when you play a game of poker, without explaining exactly how the whole thing works, everyone starts off with two cards. Now, if I was to say, if you were given two cards that no one else can see, and you had two aces, you've got the best possible starting hand in poker. And without quoting actual statistics, nine times out of 10, if you start with that hand, even without nothing else happening, you're, you're, you're more than likely going to win a pot. Okay. And as you know, 
in a suit of cards, or as you may know even, there are 13 cards in a suit, and there are four different suits, right? And you could be dealt any combination of cards. The worst starting hand in poker is a seven and a two from different suits, so like a diamond and a club, right? Now, in life, there are people who are dealt aces. So those are people who are born into aristocracy, born into wealth, you know, born into a very comfortable starting point in life. They want for absolute nothing. Then you get people who might get a seven deuce, a seven two, not from the same suit, which is statistically the worst starting hand you can get in poker. And that could be people from third world countries who don't have anything, absolutely nothing. All they have is what you see on them, and that is it, right? Now, just because someone starts off with aces, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're guaranteed to win. Because guess what? During the game of poker, you get given other cards. And depending on what happens later on and how you play those cards, you can improve your situation even though you didn't start off with the two best cards, which is a fact. Equally, so your bad hand can improve. Now, although statistics will tell you if you start off with those two hands, you're less than likely. There are still many ways and many opportunities for you to change the outcome. Equally, someone who starts with aces, as we all know and see, there are many people, kids born into rich families who stereotypically squander it because when other cards got dealt, they decided that they want to spend it, pull it up their nose or, you know, not want to continue on what their family's done and, 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 and they lost their inheritance, so to speak. So my theory is linked to that game. But is that an oversimplification? Is that too general? Because I'm trying to link it not just to if you start off wealthy, but some families may not naturally value like education. Or some families might think any form of business is too risky. So just stay in that, that lane that we know it works and just stay there and limit yourself. Is that too simplistic? Is that something that holds people back? Do people hold on to the cards they were dealt more than they should? I absolutely think so. Um, for loads of reasons. I think the psychology behind being dealt a bad hand can be crippling. Um, it can be absolutely paralyzing. Um, being dealt a bad hand can make you just want to immediately throw them in the bin. As in, <laughs> you get a bad hand sometimes and um, 
it'd be depressing. I mean, I'm talking about in life <laughs> rather than in, in the game of poker. But um, I think that has a massive effect on um, how you go about um, making decisions and uh, and uh, playing the game of life. Um, so um, I don't think it was an oversimplification at all. I think it was a profound example of how um, circumstance can in, can influence outcome. Um, and and as you said, um, some people can hold those cards and continue playing the game, and their situations can improve based on the way they play those cards. Um, we see that many a time in our society where uh, you have people that have come from working class backgrounds who have perhaps um, immigrated to another country and, and start a family, and then that, that family's gone on to become esteemed professionals or even sometimes, you know, um, uh, you know, business people, successful business people or, you know, uh, or, or just people of repute in their fields generally. So, um, and equally so, like you say, you know, there's, there's people who start, you know, start, uh, start life, you know, with a silver spoon and, uh, private, you know, private school, private schooling and, and all these things. And, you know, they wind up drug addicts, homeless, happens. <laughs> it's not an uncommon story. So, um, yeah, I think exactly. it was well put, well put. Exactly. I think uh, what you just ended with there, Akin, is what I was going to pick up on. So, irrespective of the, the hands you're dealt, um, like if you're dealt with the you know with, with your aces at the beginning, yeah, the, those those are the two cards. But there's there's a degree of chance, luck, and other circumstances that um, will mean that those with the aces don't actually uh, start with the aces, come out on top. Because the other part you have to remember as well about the game is about the bluff as well. And the bluff, as an analogy, can come down to an individual's sort of bravado and confidence they have uh, with trying to attain what it is they want to achieve. Um, the law but, of attraction. Exactly. So, um, you know, what it, you, you, you draw to you uh, what it is uh, you want, uh, so long as you believe in it in a sort of you're a mantra type type way. Um, but the interesting thing about this uh, conversation though is that it feels like we've all assumed that success is defined by money or the things that can be attained uh, with it as well, which I think in life is probably something that's um, not necessarily looked at um, in a sort of holistic sort of way. What are the most important things in life? And I think a lot of people uh, at varying stages, particularly a lot of um, elder folks in the community that I've spoken to have said that, you know, at the end of it, money isn't the be-all and end-all uh, of it. So the fact that we all, you know, we get up in our individual uh, rat races um you know, sometimes can take us away from what's actually important in life. So, for example, if you going back to the salaryman in in um, in Japan or any other industry that requires you to work, or there's an expect expectation for you to work 
12, 13, 14 hours a day, day in and day out. Well, if you think about life and the quality of it, if you have children, for example, well, for some of those people, they effectively see their children on the weekend, perhaps, maybe, because they're either at work by the time they wake up and they're asleep by the time they, they get home. You know, so in terms of life and what's actually important, that changes somewhere along the line as well. So, and that's a good point because it relates to something I was trying to highlight earlier on was that success is relative to the individual. So, someone might say, success to me is making a million pounds. Success to someone else might be not having to wake up to an alarm clock. Success to someone else might be being able to control everything they do at every minute of every day, irrespective of anything else. So when I say you can still win the hand, my analogy of winning the hand is achieving your relative goal. Because there's only society that tries to tell us what an what absolute success looks like. But actually, no one can tell you what success looks like because it should be relative, yeah? Because I don't think there is an amount of money that one can define as successful. One can say that someone is wealthy, again, or someone can say someone has an abundance of money, right? But to say that someone is successful comes down to your subjective view of what success is because someone someone like me who's not a multimillionaire might consider someone just because they had you know developed a business that is worth 50 million that's successful but then someone else who's retired on on you know and he gets to play with his grandkids all day and he's got 50 billion in account might not consider 50 million that success because his ideology and perspective of success is different. So equally, it comes down purely to what the individual's goal is, rather than, from my point of view, the money. I think money is the easiest thing for people to relate to success because we are essentially taught that you can't be successful unless you are rich. That's what that's what society tells us and that's what all the adverts tell us and that's what all the films tell us and that's what all the music tells us. Well I think I think society and music might might tell you that, but I think there's an important element as well that we can't deny. So I think culturally, I think a lot of us know that what our parents and family tell us is successful also has an influence on us, you know. So hands up who's heard a a parent either to themselves or someone else um, close to them that they know say that, you know, oh, it would be, you know, great to be a doctor when you grow up or great to be a lawyer when you grow up or great to be, well, no one thinks that a banker probably counts on that list. But a doctor and lawyer, atypically, and I think across, across cultures, from my experience, whether you were, you know, African, Caribbean, Indian, uh, Japanese, 
Chinese. I think doctors and lawyers as a as a profession is a, a pretty consistent yardstick of a form of success and a thing to aspire to, um, whereby it's quite commonly actually put out there. I guess that's true. I mean, I, I can't lie. My mum, my dad, yeah, growing up, oh, doctor, lawyer, engineer, stereotypical African thing, yeah. Um, I can't deny that. But I guess as one grows up and one starts to consider what they might want to do in life, there comes a point where an individual needs to be able to define their own idea of what success to them looks like. And I'm not suggesting for one second that that must be monetary. So, Tunde, what do you think? I think... um... I think you, you've all made good points. I think I think with regards to success, I, I look at it as qualitative or quantitative. I think the reason why people use money is because it's a measure. You can measure money. Um, and, and I think that's that we always like statistics that we can count and, and we can, you know, compare. So money is the easiest form of doing that. I think if I look at success qualitatively, it depends on so many factors like culture like as was said previously i think I, I the immediate thought that comes to my mind is what um dame dash said on um i think what was it one of the charlemagne show on uh, once and he said what if your child is not as strong as you and wow. and, I, and i sat there and, wow you know, one more time. what if your child is not as strong as you and deep down absolutely <laughs> But the point is the point I'm trying to make with 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 this is if I could have all the money in the world, but if um you know the prince was a waste man, I I, I don't think I don't think I'd feel successful, you know, or I don't I think my idea of success would completely and utterly change. In fact, my idea of success would be how much I could. Deal with that situation and how much I can actually, re, you know, recover that situation. So, not to sound emotive, but critically, uh, I think success to each individual is is no doubt about it, depending on the circumstance in which they find themselves within. But, but more more poignantly, if you're looking at it from a qualitative standpoint, you have to you have to take into account the surrounding factors that that would uh, govern the style, the strategy, the, the the execution of how that person achieves their said success. So T, if I said to you, you're not successful unless X, can someone else define success for you? Like, could I, could I define your success by saying, you're not successful unless you've got X or you're not successful until you're able to do Y? Can 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 somebody else define that for you? I guess if I'd be lying coming from a corporate role to say yes, to say no, that's not the case. Because I think anyone that's been in a company before that has worked for or had employers, so to speak, so not, not self-employed, you get measures every year as to how well you're doing. So that can determine your success and, and, and your failure, uh, so to speak, or said success or said failure. 
So I, I, I probably say professionally, yes, but but in terms of non-professionally, um, no, because not or not anymore. Um, I think if I was younger, you know, coming, I think we're, I'm not sure if we're all coming from um, Afro-Caribbean backgrounds, but I think success would be measured by what our parents thought of us or, or how well we stacked up um, in comparison to cousins or, or close friends. Um, but critically for me, no, not anymore. I've, I, I think I, I've, I've learned to be, you have to learn to be comfortable in your own skin and more importantly, define your own levels of success. Otherwise you'll be living um, up to what people want you to live to rather than what actually you feel comfortable doing. Otherwise known as living in someone else's shadow, right? Spot on. So we, in the discussion so far, we've talked about environment, We've talked about education. We talked about parents. Can I just jump back in? As you mentioned education again, just a one last point that I wanted to uh, to to talk about there with that as well. So I think a lot of people um, going to school uh, in in England, uh, if you did uh, secondary school, that is, would have come to that point of time where you got called in, you had a scheduled meeting where you got called into their careers guidance office to have a conversation about what it is you want to do with your life or what career you're interested in. And then they plugged some information into a system and then the system spat out a list of types of jobs that you could potentially do and for you to sort of consider going forward. Now, if that isn't a fine example of an antiquated uh, education system uh, that's just supporting the the, 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 the same rat race um, idea, then I don't know what is. But I think the changes in education um, are, there needs to be some changes in education to, I think, better equip and better enable, um, particularly, I, I would say, minority uh, students to to cope and understand um, money and use it a bit better going forward. I mean, the difference between if you have a thousand pounds and you don't know how to handle that, if you were born into to wealth and had a hundred thousand pounds, you, you would be as likely to lose that £100,000 as you are the £1,000 if you don't know how to actually deal with it. So is that not part of the problem, though? Right. Is part of the problem that people are relying on the state to teach their children everything? So not only are they expecting the state to provide them with a level of academic education but they are expecting them to provide them with financial education spiritual education sex education relationship education um world education societal education political education aren't we expecting too much of the state I think it's it's probably been left a lot of a lot of those areas have been firmly left 
in the hands of the education system, um, particularly around some of the issues, uh, elements around uh, religion, uh, for example. Um, again, it's where you spend a lot of your younger years growing up. But a lot of it, again, comes down to going back again to, the, I keep saying it, uh, socioeconomic sort of status and standing of your parents and the position they're in with regards to their ability to actually steer you differently or better when it comes to money, business, and and ideas. Um, so if you had, you know, let's say regular Joe working a nine to five, barely making ends meet and so forth, the, the advice that they'd be able to give their child is going to be limited to their experience of it. I mean, there might be some encouragement to say, you know, I want you to do better than me, but I typically, you would get that, okay, you need to scrimp and scrave or, you know, scrimp and save, or you need to, you know, try not spend this, you know, this much money on certain things and so forth. Or, you know, you shouldn't look at, buying really expensive things because, you know, you couldn't, be, you couldn't afford it, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that makes me consider something else, right? So Akin and T and I went to the same school, right? Now, I've scanned my mind back to secondary school. And I do not recall a meeting with a careers person where they took my interest, put it into a machine and told me what I should do. And I've heard other people that went to other schools, they had that experience. I can see, did I, did I, was I not in that day or did it, did it not happen? I'm trying to work out if that's a confession to being a truant child whilst you're oh, in school or, or if <laughs> I never truanted once in my whole academic career someday um, oh my man you, you, did, you didn't live then <laughs> oh I lived don't you worry about that I really lived <laughs> I can only take this one on the careers piece, bro. Um, no, it didn't happen. Uh, I, I did no such session. Um, and if it were an option, I probably would have turned it from it. And if you needed further, if you needed further confirmation, that certainly did not occur. That meeting did not occur at all. At all. No, because I, I have heard other people say that they had a session and not, you know, being very pessimistic and, and cynical, I don't think it would have made any impact on my life whatsoever, <laughs> but I still feel cheated that I didn't experience it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And although I'm, I'm saying it with tongue in cheek, actually, I've gone through school without anybody actually asking me what I wanted to do when I grew up. Now, I won't say that's caused any trauma in my life, but isn't that a, a fundamental failure 
of the school, at least, that I went to. I mean... Well, this is, this, this again, another, sorry to interject again, another interesting point here um, as well. So when um, my mother was deciding where I should go to school, so at this point, uh, living in, in London, so my mum was deciding where I should go, you know, where I should go to school. And she looked at the area and she looked at the different schools and she looked at the sort of outcomes um, with, you know, at schools where there was a high ethnic proportion of students, right? So a high proportion of black students potentially. And she came she came to the conclusion that she wouldn't want me to go to a secondary school in London because atypically she saw that the black students struggled and didn't do as well. So her intention was always to move out to a more suburban area with the intention of me getting a better education and now this is just based on her observations of her environment at the time as opposed to a, a, you know an, an Ofsted level inspection of each school in London to determine the, the success rate of black students um, but and this is what I said about your socioeconomic um, circumstances and positioning so her assessment was that you know she would have moved out to a suburb area for secondary schooling with the aim of giving me a better chance at a better education. And that to me was quite a powerful thing um, to hear, I think, which obviously I only heard after the fact, as, as I got older, she would tell me about that. But um, I don't know about uh, you guys and your experience of it. How, how did that compare? I mean, I will say for me, you know, going to school here was just a thing, as in, oh, that's like, gives you no information. I'll say that again. I, at the time, go, growing up in school, I didn't feel like I was lacking anything when I was in school. And that's primary school and secondary school. You know, to be honest, at that age, I, there was no comparator for me. And I didn't really have too many family members that were the same age. So it was only my friends in school and, and two closest ones are on, 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 on this call, you know, there was no comparator. So there wasn't any feeling of being cheated out of a good education or bad education. To be honest, school was as much about fun and socialise as it was about making sure you got good grades and we all got good grades. But it's only when you get older and it's only when you go into the wider world that you then realise how much weight certainly your educational and academic status uh the, the weight of it in in the professional world so to give an example there are certain careers you cannot get into and certain companies you essentially cannot get into if if you haven't had a private education that that's from my point of view, a fact. There are certain opportunities you're just less likely to get 
if you've not been endowed with a network of individuals via private school social networks and the parents of children who may work in certain types of industries because they've always done that. There's certain, there's certain pathways that you just can't get if you haven't been through it. So I'm not sure if we're all familiar with the concept of um, six degrees of separation. Is it six or seven? I think six. Six degrees of separation. So um, it's a concept where basically you you know everyone everyone can is connected to everyone in this world by six different degrees. So uh, T's friend and T's friend, T's friend, T's friend is someone that I know type thing um, or, or I'm connected to, right? So your network, as you've probably heard, your network determines your net worth. So if my network has, for example, been in South London secondary school, a South London college and a university that's based in South London, um, then there's a chance that all my network is concentrated with the associates that I've made in that area. And that is it. And there's lots of good connections that one can make from that. And that's great. And there might not be. But if you went for a different pathway, you just might have different opportunities that you would not get in the first opportunity. And I'm not necessarily saying that you can't get goodness out of Southeast London. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. But I'm just trying to make the point that different pathways and different routes just can or more likely to give you different outcomes. I'm not necessarily saying better either, just saying different. Um, if I may, I, I think I think one of the you know, one of the most shocking things I I think we discovered as we were coming up, the three of us, especially with regards to school and listening to you and listening to the excellent choices uh, your mother made, Stephen. I, I think critically for us, it, without disrespecting the institution that we attended, to be fair, because it, it did give us one thing that we will all swear by, and that's each other. But critically, our school was just daycare, fam. In every, in every, pretty harsh. In every sense of the word, if 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 that wasn't a bomb drop, I don't know what was. Our school, our school was just free daycare. In comparison to, especially, and Anthony kind of touched on it with the degrees of separation and and alike. Especially as we started to explore our our probably our more out or, or, or outer laying degrees of se- of that separation where as we grew older and met with, and connected with more individuals we realized as we look back that our educational structure or our, or even just the routine within our within our secondary school was just not adequate enough to give us the edge needed and, and you know we disc- I think myself and Anthony discovered that very very quickly in college you know, when mixing with other, with other, with other um, Southeast London or whatever, or even uh, just just on the border of Kent schools and liaising within other pupils, we just were not ready for that environment at all. And um, I think critically, when, you know, when Anthony talks about, you know, uh, that that experience, 
Anthony is not a non-successful academic individual. He's a very successful academic individual. And he still makes that point <laughs> that it wasn't necessarily the right, it wasn't right. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't comparable, which I think is a massive point. And I, and I think a lot of people, Stephen, would have, would have wished they had parents that had looked into the situation a lot more deeply as, as, as your mother did, because it does matter if you're trying to take that trajectory of, of a, you know, of a career path that is a little bit more slow lane and it is a little bit more structured. Um, because again, you know, to go back a little bit uh, to before, we didn't have that careers chat, and that was never on the table. I think we had a national record of achievement. That's probably the best, the best, the closest thing they had <laughs> to a career. <laughs> the closest thing they had to a to a career tracker, um, so to speak. So yeah. Um, do, do you know? I, I I still think I have have my one of those at home. Yeah, what what a joke! I mean, I mean, I, I to, my dad's got this special briefcase where, where, where he keeps all of our, 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 our sort of documents from childhood. And I look at it, and I was like, they made a big deal out of that NRA folder, like it was going to be some defining document of life. Yeah, man, they really did. Has didn't. anyone actually found a use case for it? <laughs> Bonfire. I'd say banter. So I guess, so this is an educational thing and we've discussed the influence it can have on one's outcome. I mean, I'm at the point now in life where I don't believe an academic education is a prerequisite for any type of success. I think governmentally they've started to realise this. And I think a lot of the recent changes in in education um, and the introduction of uh, apprentices, apprenticeships into the education system whereby, you know, everyone isn't, I'm going to use the word coerced into the A level and and you know degree path in life. I think there's finally been some acknowledgement that there are people who, who education isn't the best way to serve them in life. Um, but learning a skill, developing a, a skill that you know a practical skill that they can use as a, you know, to, to develop a different journey, um, to, to, you know, almost join a, a different rat race or, you know, take up a different lane, um, in terms of, of travel is sort of one thing that they've started probably a little bit too late. So note, you know, noting the significance of education, yes, for those, um, career pathways that we've said you can't achieve unless you tick through those boxes but acknowledging that not everyone is academically inclined is a is a big step i think i totally agree i totally agree what what do you think akin akin you there Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was on mute. Sorry. 
Um, I was just saying, I think Stephen made some really, really uh, good points there around um, uh, education and, and, and the failures, certain failures that the, the current system makes. But um, it just had me thinking about um, the right race in general and how the right race, uh, how it treats human beings in the sense of um, what role human beings play in the system. And the role human beings play in the system of the rat race are they are the input. So they are the, if you like, um, they're the initial investment, right? And with that initial investment, you want to make the maximum yield, right? So you want to put as little, uh, I guess, input. Resource. Resource. <laughs> resource is probably the better word. They're the initial resource. So you want to, you want to use as little resource as possible to get the maximum yield, right? So, yeah, yeah, the right race, which encompasses the educational system and and both primary level and and the work system, um, uh, the right race essentially is is that which um, is trying to minimize the the amount of resource it puts into uh, into the, the, the people who are participating to get the maximum yield. So, um, you find yourself in a situation where uh, if you're if you're partaking and you're you're part of that system, the onus is on the individual to conform, and I think that is the that is, that is the word that I want to sort of home in on because um, when you become uh, obsessed with conforming, um, it completely diminishes and demoralizes any sense of. Um, uh, sort of self-esteem that you might be able to derive, sort of from your own value, from your own individuality, and and that causes all kinds of problems, right? So, um, I think that's the real failing of the rat race or of the institutions that uh, comprise the rat race. Um, that it wastes human potential, and it makes uh, it creates a scenario where people forget that um, they have choice and they uh, completely uh, lose track of the, the, the idea that um, uh, conform, that conformity isn't always uh, a good thing. Um, yeah, that was one of the It's almost like, you know, the rat race is perpetuated by a democratic institution that doesn't want capitalistic ideology to take hold uh, across a broader section of society. Oh yes. Now you've said it. Because there's a, because there's a requirement for you to fulfill that particular function. So whether it be having a sufficient, sufficiently large body of the population to, you know, generate taxes um, to, to fund the, the machina, um, you know, so if, 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 you know, so the stepping away from the rat waste and thinking outside of the box and pursuing different avenues of success, um, you know, going back to the millionaire fast lane book that you, uh, referenced earlier in the conversation, Anthony, and the, the principles that they sort of outlined and, you know, the way in which you can, um, excel and, you know, effectively, fast track your what would be a capitalistic 
sort of lifestyle, you know, uh, in terms of success, if we want to define it as such, then I think that democrat that democratic institution needs the rat race to sort of thrive. So I'm going to summarise that before I come to T and say basically that rat race breaks as soon as people decide to not partake in it. I think yes and no. I think there was a few points made earlier by Stephen that really like I, I, when 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 you said it, Stephen, I, I thought to myself, wow. You, you, you hit the nail on the head essentially with apprenticeships. I think, I think the government realised very quickly that there are successful people out there that haven't conformed, and to use Atkins' word, um, to the norm of or, or to the systematic norm that they tried to promote. So they created apprenticeships to to get to to almost it almost encourage the the, the non requirement to have to conform in that manner. Um, I also think a lot of I also think things like apprenticeships came about because the cost of university became completely inaccessible for those that didn't have the um, the monetary uh, the, the monetary uh, fortitude in order to uh, to put it forward. Um, I remember speaking to early in my career, speaking to someone that was earning you know a very very good amount of you know two hundred k a year. Saying to me, well, I'm 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 not sure I'm not so sure if I want to put my kids in university anymore. It's it's you know nine grand a year or whatever it is now, you know was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So you know people people started to become priced out of actually having the full level of education that they could possibly that that one could be accessed to that could access normally. Um, I then move on a little bit to about you know. Re, um, sorry, to a little bit about um, again. Sorry, on the old apprenticeship piece, I did also think that there are some people that are, that are successful, or, or or at least are deemed to be successful, going through channels such as social media, uh, Love Island, stuff like that helps. You know, I mean, you, you don't necessarily need to need to go through the normal system in order to obtain some sort of level of success so I, I i say to myself i say to you guys yes the rat race does break the the ingenuity of those that want to you know have ideas but i also think that most people are actually these days priced out of just doing the rat race <laughs> itself and and i think society had to find a way uh, in some in in some guys or another such as stuff like um apprenticeships to 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 at least be able to almost give people a structure as such to perform a trade. That's a, that's an interesting point. That, that's a very interesting. I've, I've probably not looked at it from that perspective, um, which says that some people can't even play the rat race. When people, when 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 these massive corporations have prerequisite things for you to apply for, that is you being priced out of the right. And if that on there has a a form of education that you have to purchase, that is you being priced out of the right. So, so you just reminded me of uh, this was this was a long time, but this probably straight out of uh, straight out of uni, and I remember. As you do, you're applying for jobs, 
you know, you're trying to apply for jobs. And I remember one said, oh, you need to have X amount of UKS points. I was like, okay, check. And then it goes, you need to have gone to one of these two schools. And I was like, okay, no check. And then I looked at the third quadrant just in the hope that I might be able to tick that box. And it, and it basically said, I'm not going to name the company. It said, we prefer people who have come from private education. That was the biggest slap I've ever received that didn't land on my face. <laughs> yeah, and that's millions of, of, of worthy, worthy candidates like yourself that, that companies are not even willing to see an application from. So that, 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 that is effectively a VIP cording enough that is you having the door slammed in your face that is anybody sorry having the door slammed in their face that is critically one lane from us and 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 another lane for you steven what, what do you think um i want to i want to that that's that's all a very good point and i i agree with that and it is quite a soul destroying thing you know to sort of hear that you know, irrespective, I mean, if you had, you had a first and, you know, first degree and whatnot with honors and all of that, that it was inconsequential when, when faced, <laughs> when, when faced with a particular ideology and, and level of expectation for, from a particular organization. But I just wanted to take it across the pond, uh, to the US to sort of extrapolate the, the, um, the rat race sort of disparity and how society can be controlled in that regard. So we were talking about the um, cost of tuition fees, uh, university tuition fees in this country. So up until um, 1998-ish sort of time, um, education, uh, university education in England was free. So you didn't actually have to pay for it. In 1998, they introduced uh, tuition fees uh, for the first time. Overseas students, however, um, had been paying tuition fees um, uh, in the region of what the local tuition fee is now, but no one really thought anything about that. Again, going back across the pond to America, and if you actually look at the the cost of university education there, outside of getting a full scholarship, which is a lot of the aspirational dream that a lot of people have, and they invest in sports in that regards to try and get those uh, scholarships so that they don't have to pay for education. The educational dollars, isn't it? The educational cost goes into six figures. Potentially, yeah, sure. Uh, sure. which which isn't something that you see here. So, if you examine the cross section of of America, and again that that um, breakdown of the economical status of varying parts of that country and the ethnic minority or the ethnic uh, breakdown against the poorer, at, you know, sections of America. And then you think about the actual cost of university growing up. What is your aspiration going to be? Your, your dream, your, your aspiration, your definition of success in that regard might actually just be going to university, not 
the what comes after that, but just actually being able to afford to get there. Um, and it was a very interesting thing to me that what the largest university financial institution actually ceased to exist following the financial crisis in 2008-9. I mean, you make a, a very polarizing point because if I refer back to the analogy right at the beginning about the different lanes, I think there's nowhere in the world I can think of where the lines are extremely hyper-defined in America. And I think it's visibly, I think in, in some ways you see it a lot more, or it's more vivid when you consider the fact that, well, you know, how many people in America, the average salary is X, how many people can afford to send their kids to school when it's like six figures, you know, and it's almost like a, a barrier of entry that is almost set too high for most people. But, you know, people still seem to try and find a way. A lot of people still find a way to do it. And, and unfortunately, there are some people who just can't do it. And that brings me on to, I guess, money. More specifically, financial literacy. Now, if I think back to school, I don't think we had one lesson on financial management. I do recall, though, that one lady popped in from a bank and she, she just told us you can open a savings account. But that was, that was it. I mean, five years of school <laughs> and that was it. I don't know, T, Akin, again, if there were any other lessons that I missed where we got any other info that I just was not around for. But I only recall ever seeing one woman pop in to say, you know, you can open a bank account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that day. I got a file of facts. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, yeah, I'm not sure if we're allowed to even mention certain company names right now, but the name doesn't is not used. So it was a Midland Bank thing as well. Like that's that that is a mockery in itself. I have South- others. I mean, I mean, that is the point I'm trying to get at. So should the state be responsible for educating its children on financial management or at least give it a baseline understanding or should that be left with the parents? Now, the reason I'm highlighting this is I can only give anecdotes from my personal experience. I can't give anecdotes from someone else's personal experience. So I'll give an anecdote from my personal experience, yeah? And what I'll say is there was definitely a perception when I was growing up that sort of all debt is bad, right? And I'm not saying that that's incorrect for a second, 
but what I was never taught either at home or at school is that actually one needs to acquire what some refer to as good debt. These are debts you use to buy assets. Now, most people will be familiar with the concept of getting a mortgage to buy a house. And that is the standard investment that society promotes and values. And a lot of people base their personal wealth and sort of well-being on the value associated with their house. Yeah. But people are not as familiar with the concept of using the same method or structure to buy different types of assets from other asset classes or to use the same type or similar types of financing to be able to start a business. So there's a lot of people out there that, okay, oh, let me not say there's a lot of people. Let me try and narrow it down a little bit. There are conversations I've had with people that they've got really good at business ideas, really good, and they need to raise money to launch their idea, you know, to get the project launched and to do some marketing for that product so that it has a chance of being visible to potential customers. So that so let's come up with a scenario and that person says, oh, you know, I, I, I haven't got X amount to, to do it. I said, okay, so why didn't you get a loan? Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to be in debt. And, I, and I'm there scratching my head. It's like, but you bought your 50 grand car on finance and that's definitely going to make you no money. So... I guess that comes from, and I'm assuming here, that that comes from an ideology where, you know, people are too risk adverse to take on debt, but people are comfortable to take on debt to consume what they think is a status symbol. Right? They're... Yeah, that that that's because perception is king, right? So, what you what what you believe is being projected about yourself as you know to help define your level of success. So, you know that's again the bit of the rat race that you spoke about um, with regards to keeping up with the Joneses or that other family who I shan't actually name because I can't stand them. Um, Kardashian. <laughs> yep. Um, so, you know, again, part of that right race thing is, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, everyone, everyone knows that. So the latest car, the biggest car, the, the biggest house, you know, the, 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 the most expensive clothing, you know, the high end, this, the luxury holidays, you know, it's all, all of that perception and the projection of, 
of wealth and and success that uh, people get fixated by and many a person has gotten into a significant life-altering amount of debt in pursuit of that perception as opposed to an accumulation of good debt um, towards the acquisition of assets. And that's perfect. And that's a perfect explanation because it links me on to a concept that is the basis of a lot of discussions that we've spoken about today. And I guess to pull it into a sentence, we've all been trained to rely on income. We've all been trained that you get a job that pays your salary, you're going to get paid 12 times a year, which means you're going to split all your bill to be, so you can pay them in 12 installments and you're going to live your life with that ceiling of your salary after tax, right? And I was sitting down the other day and uh, I speak to Akin and I speak to Tunde very regularly on lots of different types of things relating to tax, politics, finance, business, work, you know, lots of random things as you do. And I was speaking to Akin and T the other day and I said, I'm just going to throw out a random scenario so, Stephen, you tell me how this makes you feel. So, if you were fortunate enough to get a job that pays you, for the sake of easy maths, 100 grand a year, right? On PAYE, after they've taken all the taxes out and the NI and the pension and everything else, you're probably left with 50%. Right? So let's call that an effective tax rate of 50%. If you earn 100 grand through capital gains of shares, for example, I'll just use shares as an easy example, you would pay a capital gains tax of 20%. So if you were fortunate enough to be in a position where you could get a capital gain of 100 grand in shares, for example, or a, another asset class, you're, you're, you're essentially saving yourself 30% in tax just by not being employed. What do you think about that? I, I think I would very much like to have that stock portfolio that generates 100,000 in uh, capital gains for a start. Um, <laughs> we all? Yeah, uh, just, just given the math. But yeah, so, it's the, so that's the definition of not working for money, right? So the idea is not to work for money, and it's, it's the most important money you earn is the money that you earn whilst you're asleep. So there, there takes a degree of in intelligence uh, to actually understand the difference between working for the 100,000 and net, um, sorry, gross, gross amount um, versus the 100,000 from the capital gains amount. Um, interestingly, um, the alternative would be just a, randomly put this out there then would I would take the hundred thousand uh, pounds 
but if I earned it in Singapore, for example, uh, because against that, I would be paying less than, I think, 10% tax. But I would still be working, right? As opposed to a capital gains effective windfall um, of the hundred thousand. So it it what what it what that sort of enables then is a certain degree of freedom. So it allows you to invest your time quite very differently. Um, given those two options, so whilst you are working, however many hours day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, to get your 100,000 PAYE pounds, then that capital gains 100,000 income comes at a, 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 a significantly smaller proportion of time. And time is the crucial element there. So the portfolio, if it's big enough to generate that much, is effectively, you know, sort of taking care of its care of itself. Uh, you might be on a sort of Warren Buffett level in terms of your investment uh, opportunities and and how you actually play the markets. <laughs> so I guess obviously I've used a sort of maybe an extreme example to, but I guess. It was the concept that I wanted to put out there. I guess Akin and T. Most people understand the concept of passive income, but realistically, most people have jobs where they work forty hours a week. They've got a, a, a one hour travel to and from work. A one hour one-way trip to work um, and they've got the hour on the way back. Uh, a lot of adults obviously have got children and have got family responsibilities. Is it feasible for everyone to have a side hustle? Because if you, again, if you go online, choose your favourite social network and there's no shortage of people telling you that passive income is the way for Everyone needs to have a side hustle. Everyone should have one. You know, your nine to five is grind for the boss and five to 12, 12 a.m. is grind for yourself. Is that, is what, that possible for everyone, Akin? What, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I want to I tie all three of your last questions together. So. <laughs> so two questions ago was around whether the state should be entrusted to teach children financial literacy. Um, I think... Uh, it's an interesting point because if you do entrust the state to teach your child financial literacy, what are they likely to teach them? What are they incentivized to teach them? They're incentivized to teach them financial literacy, which complements the uh, the current state, the current paradigm of um, uh, the the uh, industrial revolution or uh, industrial revolution. Uh, um, model of producing a citizen, which is essentially give them a, a sort of prescriptive uh, start education to get them from school into uh, an office job or an administrative job or a civil service job. So the financial the financial um, education they're likely to get is, is likely to 
um, to suit the scenario that they're being trained to 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 be in uh, when they enter the work world. So, is that the financial education that you're like you're likely to want your child to have? I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's most certainly it's most certainly not likely to make them necessarily that financially secure. So, um, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. Um, I think a basic level of financial literacy is is, is obviously good, but um, I think a, a total absence creates a vacuum. So I think there should be some basic um, financial literacy uh, taught by the state. And then the second question you had, sorry to hog up too much, I think was around um, uh, was around uh, passive income. So um, fi- financial literacy, obviously, once you have a certain level of financial literacy, you become privy to the world of investment and to the world of uh, making money through assets and that kind of thing. And I, I don't see how uh, the state is incentivized to, to expose that, that method of making in- income to the layman because people just wouldn't turn up for work. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a great thing to know about these things, but the, yeah, the state has the state has virtually no incentive to teach people how to make money by not going into work. There's, there's no incentive for them to do that. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely the way forward in terms of the type of um, flexibility and freedom that perhaps you and I might want for ourselves going forward, especially you, a growing family, um, and you know the quality time you you want to spend with them sort of going forward. And then the question you just made about the side hustle, um, yeah, the, the side hustle thing is, um, I think everyone does have the time to have a side hustle. I think it just comes down to um, uh, priorities. I mean, you can't have it all and something must uh, give. So yeah, of course you're going to have a side hustle, but you know, what are you prepared to sacrifice for it? Simple as that. And that is the question. That is the question. Tunde. Uh, for financial literacy, I did. I mean, I I'd never expected school to teach to teach that. To be fair, and in in all honesty, I don't know why I didn't, and I probably should have done. And um, that probably speaks more to the expectations of uh, of one going into school at that level. But critically, I think if you do if you do start teaching financial literacy at that age, I think you lose the you, you lose the whole I don't know experience innocence or the realism of what life can or and will turn out to be anyway eventually i think the onus in my opinion is on the parents i think the parents parents should should prioritize that teaching um in and out of you know outside of educational setting and i think that's that's probably the more longer lasting effect for most we all know we all went to school with someone that was stingy it's likely that it's likely that that's come from a from a parental background and, and all sorts. So, it's it's. I think it's. I think that that's probably the route to go down. And you know, as as we're all educated within the new within this system, I think we will ensure that our offspring are are taught financial literacy at at, at whatever level as a life skill. In fact, the second point um, was about the side hustle, and, and and of course, yes, I think I think in in many ways everybody should should sorry sorry was passive income and i think yes everybody should tap into or or find a way to tap into making ways of passive income i do think though the knowledge of that comes from having 
run the race and it not being for you. I don't think I've met anybody that has been able to acquire passive income that hasn't necessarily taken some lessons from the rat race into it, either it being poor lessons, bad experiences or whatever. So yeah, definitely, definitely um, something that I would get behind. And, and I think it's important that most people or some people have that. And of course, sorry, uh, to settle on the side hustle piece, I think definitely it's dependent on your lifestyle and your drive. I think most people would 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 want to have one. Um, I think some people, I think most people should be drawn towards doing what they love. And if that can make money out of what you, sorry, or doing what you enjoy or doing what comes natural to you. And I think if that can make some money, you're in a little bit of luck because it will never feel like work. Um, but critically, if you if you're learning how to do something and the learning piece and, uh, uh, you know, trying to acquire that knowledge is a bit of a struggle that can be a little bit um, disheartening and put people off of doing it. I think um, one of the things I've I remember talking to Anthony about years and years ago was people don't see the amount of businesses that fail um, before the one that makes it. And I think that failure that trying, you know, there's no triumph without trying first. And I think, and I think critically for most people, that element of, that element of trying is a, is a, is a learned ability. It's difficult for people to, to, to do, in my opinion. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. So I've got one last question for each of you. I just need a yes or a no. And I'm going to start with Stephen. Can capitalism exist in a society where everybody wins? No. Akin? Uh, define wins, sorry. So it's... Everybody profits. No. T. Not at all, no. And for completeness, hell no. I don't think it can. Um, that brings us to the end of this podcast and to this episode. If you are interested in finding out what it takes to start your own business or you're interested in a, in a side hustle, um, there is a book that I read a couple of years back. It's really, really good. It's called Self-Made Book. And it's by Bianca... Say name now. Bianca Miller and Byron uh, Cole. Um, they're entrepreneurs and they've had lots of successful businesses and they've written a book which is also a bestseller on Amazon as well. So I definitely recommend you have a look at that book if you're interested in finding out the basics of starting up a business and how to make it successful. Um, we're obviously really interested in finding out what you think about the show so please leave a comment on our website or on the podcast site of your choosing Um, we really appreciate that and we will be publishing another episode really soon which will be called COVID-19 through the eyes of heroes so make sure you look out for that when that comes out thank you very much